You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie at As We Do every week at this time. Joining me is Marty Gibson with Media Matters. Good morning, Marty. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm good, thank you. Chilly, but good. Oh, yeah, I'm chilly, but good too. Hey, before we get going, um, we've had some feedback. Oh. I know, I know. The inbox team flicked these through to me, and I thought, ooh, I have to read them out. Oh, now I've got to find them. So we've, we've, we've been called from Vicky. This was very interesting and informative uh, from Rachel. Uh, this was the interview with Trevor. Thanks, for Marie, uh, thanks, Marie, for mentioning Trevor and being on RCR before. I was able to track that down and have a good listen. Another one, really liking Trevor Loudon's discussion. Another fantastic discussion. Loving listening to the interviews, thoughts and opinions. Have a wonderful interview style, warm and intelligent. That's from Tracy. This was actually from us from Media Matters last week. Uh, this is from Sandra. Love the no shit Sherlock file, which I think I was talking in regards to education and open plan classrooms and media matters last week. The file is bursting at the seams, again, um, against the so-called modern learning environments, but the rubber stamped negative when I spoke out. Uh, as per the lady you interviewed, I used to I used meditation as a very effective tool in the classroom for myself and my children, and that was Kelly Valudos. So thank you, Sandra. And love Marie's style, intelligence, and perfect radio voice. Oh, thank you. And very much like Marty as well. There we wow. go. So there you go. Some feedback for us. It's always, you know, when you're saying things that aren't being said somewhere else, there is that feeling of nervousness. Isn't there? Pretty obvious. Why isn't anyone else saying it? I know. I was actually working in Wellington all weekend for my day job. Actually, the number of people that quietly came up and said, thank you so much for, you know, your other job and little winks and, and <laughs> nudges because they're listening and they're feeling that finally that they're hearing their voices reflected. You know, I'm really glad that we can do that. I mean, what we do with this segment is we take what's in the legacy space by and large, and we sort of apply an overall critical thinking lens to it and or mm. sort of tear off the rose-tinted glasses a little bit and scratch a little sometimes bit deeper to see what's underneath. It's much, sometimes it's as much about what's not in the news as is as fascinating as what is. I've said it before at the end of shows, share it widely because it helps to change the agendas. It helps to broaden Overton's window. And as I said uh, last week, it's like we're in a car with someone we suspect is a serial killer and the city's turned to an urban environment. Now we're turning down a country road and uh, it's never going to be easier to speak up. So that's a big help if you can share it with your networks. Oh, absolutely. So being away, of course, in Wellington, my access to things like the Herald were practically non-existent, but I did grab the post in the Sunday Star Times, but I also was staying with family. And the first thing that struck me on Friday night, they popped the uh, six o'clock news on, uh, which is something that I'm not generally akin to watching these days. Mm. And I remembered, it reminded me why. It reminded yeah. me why. And the lead story was the report card for Te Whatu Ora. It has been a year. Uh, they do say time flies when you're having fun. I can't believe it's been a year of that monstrosity. So for those who aren't necessarily averse in health 
or what's going on in the healthcare system, Te Whatu Ora have now gone a complete full circle in, in the New Zealand health system. So if you've been in the system for more than 30 years, you will see that we've literally gone all the way back to where we were in the 90s, and that was a thing called Crown Health Enterprises. So Te Whatu Ora is essentially a Crown Health Enterprise and everything with a, a whizzy new name. And this is why I got a bit angry at the telly and had to pop off and have a glass of wine. The view from both the chief executive and Dr. Aisha Viral was, quote unquote, a narrow pass mark for their first year in existence. (laughs) I was stunned. I was utterly stunned that they could think that anything in this last year within the health system would have achieved a pass. But then again, I have to put my Cam Slater hat on and remember that these are essentially politicians after all. They're never going to apologise for anything and they're never going to admit that they've got it wrong or it's anything less than stellar. So the fact that they said a narrow pass mark, I think is probably as as honest yeah. as you're going I, to get. I'd what do you it. think? I go a step further than Cam in my cynicism, you know, because as I often say, you know, you you can look at what the government's getting criticised for, what appears to be bungling, and you can say, God, these guys are stupid, they're doing a terrible job. Maybe they're doing a great job. Mm. I always wonder whether something's a feature, not a bug. This move towards centralisation. Also, there's so much double speak. But I guess what I just took away looking at all, because there were quite a few stories about health in the papers over the weekend anyway that we'll get to uh, presently, but it's getting starker and starker, this war between management and people actually doing things. And that's been played out. I mean, you could argue that the war between Russia and Ukraine is a war between, you know, finance and producers. Another thing we'll get to later on is that this most prominent embodiment of that is the WEF. It's the ultimate management class. Mm. seeks this kind of neo-feudalism. And I'm so glad you brought that point up because it was the one that was screaming at me and mm. has been for some time. And the absolute steady mushroom-like growth in non-frontline staff, so I'm not talking about medical staff or technicians or anything of the like, non-frontline staff. So these are backroom laptop lifestylers for all intents and purposes (laughs) that run the health system. They have grown exponentially like every other government department, but in health, that has been growing. Yeah, and they're always saying, oh, well, you know, now we've got this extra management, we're going to make it more efficient. It's like, dude, you're the problem. In stuff, uh, report card one year on from Te Whatu Ora. This is the headline. A year ago, the government established a nationalised health system, Te Whatu Ora, intended to remove the postcode lottery of healthcare. Now, that is gaslighting right there. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. That was never its intention. Its intention was to centralise and take back control of all healthcare outcomes, decision-making, away from the 23 DHBs. Pure and simple. Nothing else. If they say anything else, they're lying. Their lips are moving. The truth is not coming out. I can tell you that right now for a fact. They went on to say, truly a national health system with treatment no longer determined by where you live was the triumphant cry in December 2021. So we all know that that's a crock of crap. Elected district health boards were off to the scrap heap with more than 80,000 employees would now have one employer from July 1st, 2022. I looked this morning. I've been up early 
before the show got started. And I was diving around trying to find, because the whole point of centralisation, one would have thought that if you were getting rid of all of those 23 DHBs and you were amalgamating the what is essentially the administrative state for Tafata Order under a single umbrella, that there would be plenty of people that all of a sudden would become surplus to requirements because no longer you have 23 little fiefdoms, you now just have one. Mm. I could not find anywhere where there was essentially restructuring on a grand scale. I found that there were chief executives of each individual DHBs that moved on, but those chief executives moved on mostly to other positions within the organisation yep. or they went out into the private sector, some of them. But so those are only a handful. So you've gone and taken this monolith that was in 23 pieces, pulled it together and not streamlined it at all whatsoever. Yeah. But, I mean, that power grab is a recurring pattern. And, I mean, we won't uh, – this is the only thing that's on this, so it's sort of, I'll bring it in because it's relevant in Friday's Herald – there was a, an article about Auckland Council furious at government move on light rail. It, it had Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown furious with the government ministers for basically moves that will see the council stripped of its planning role for the light rail corridor. He was responding to a letter from Finance Minister Grant Robertson, Housing Minister Megan Woods, instructing uh, Kainga Ora Board Chair Mark Gosh to begin a process of potentially taking control of urban development along the 24-kilometre light rail route from Central City to the airport. Now, this isn't there's no consultation. It's just old squealers got in there and uh, yoink, we know best. You know, my background as a Marxist student politician uh, means that I will be better placed to tell you and private businesses what you're going to do. And mm. it's it's the same with health, just this assumption that politicians can manage managers to manage doctors better than you could say to doctors, hey, look, we've got these issues in this region, get in and fix them. Mm. We'll give you resources to hire who you need. And it's that kind of total rebuild that the health system needs. They went on and stuff and spoke to six people to get their pass and fail marks. So obviously Margie Arpa, who is the chief executive for all of Tafara Order, of course she gave it the, uh, what did she term it, the narrow pass mark from Margie. Yeah. Aisha Verrill's living in a whole other place that we don't live in. Aisha th thinks that it's been fantastic. And she's now talking about increasing nursing placements, which we'll get onto in a minute. They also spoke, um, spoke to Shane Retty, Dr Shane Retty, uh, National Spokesman for Health. Of course, he was very scathing, but it was the other three that uh, they I spoke to Julian Vias is from ASMS, Deborah Powell, I think, is from the association, and the other chap is Paul uh, Golfer. Deborah Powell, the DHB drove us to the brink of disaster, and COVID's tipped us over to the edge. It's not to Fatu Aura's fault. Yeah, I mean, you know, speaking of Asia Verrill, did you read in the Weekend Herald that she was going to visit? Auckland City Hospital, and before her arrival, an email was sent to staff announcing that measures were being taken to mitigate extreme pressures on acute services. Yeah, an additional 40 flex beds were being opened, private ambulances had been contacted, contracted to help transfer patients, education and training had been deferred, and temporary staff were being brought in from outside agencies. I guess that allows her to, with a straight face, say, yeah, pass, Mark. We're doing great. I was talking to some people, they're real happy about the 
measures we've taken. It's right up there with Jan Tenety. I saw, I think she was on Q&A over the oh. weekend, saying, yeah, literacy is improving. And Jack Tame just going, oh, yeah, okay. It's just like, dude, you know, you're the guy who's uh, the great shining hope of New Zealand journalism. It's amazing how often that happens to him. Someone says, no, nah, no, it's not. There's this and it just moves on. I watched a bit of that, uh, as you know, because I was texting you. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I've only ever read, I, I, because I don't watch a lot of television like that, I, I only ever read stuff about Jane Tanetti. So mm. I didn't see the beginning of the piece, who she was introduced, she's on there. And I actually had to text you saying, who is this woman? Uh, right. It's kind of her shtick, as I said. It's, it's not a bug, it's a feature. It allows her to, oh, to mislead Parliament. And they kind of say, yeah, well, I mean, she did lie and she didn't take any opportunity to correct the lie, but she's just so thick. <laughs> it didn't seem malicious. It just seems... Never uh, attribute to a conspiracy what you can contribute to. Tame, to be fair, did actually have some very good questions that he was trying to to pin it to the mat with and actually get some straight answers. And it was like she was dancing around in like one of those hippos Uh, in Fantasia, spinning around, (laughs) twirling, you know, sprinkling sort of happy fairy dust everywhere. I mean, it was just utter waffles. It worked. Well, I'm just going to get the, So, Pal from the, the union continued to say here, not after saying it's not to fight at war, is fault. National Secretary for both Resident Doctors Association and the Apex Union. Every frontline worker or union representative interviewed for the story says they never expected things to be honky dory by now. So, if you're in the system, you kind of knew it was shit and, and you knew that it was you've, going to continue yeah, you've to be seen shit. endless restructures. You've seen endless yeah. new management things with, yeah, everything's going to be cool. And you just know, oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially if you have been in the health system in this country for more than a decade, believe me, you, yeah. you'll be thinking that way. But conditions are unchanged, if not worse, than a year ago. Most were giving Tafata Order the benefit of the doubt. And this is the quote. It's a bit hard to eyeball the alligators when the swamp is still full, Powell says. Okay, Powell, what are the alligators? Because I certainly know what I believe the alligators are, and that's what I just talked about before, all of those alligators that for somehow got moved to this much, much bigger swamp. Vengeful nurses who get into management. (laughs) You said that. I did not say that. I'm not going to talk about vengeful nurses, but I'm going to talk about nurses that go into management. There's a reason why a lot of nurses go into a management. When you look at nursing training and the role of a nurse, everything in nursing is process-driven. They are process-led creatures by their nature. So if you're a person that loves process, you and nursing are nursing is a great place for you. You give them a process and a protocol to follow. They'll be sending Facebook messages to their family members. Yeah, they love it, they're, and they're good at it. And we need, and you need those people in a system to make it work. They are the worker ants. They are the uh, the honeybees. They are the people that make all of that happen. Yep. So it means that they they have a natural affinity for management because, of course, if you're already steeped in the process and you understand the process, that means that you can help create the process and manage a process. Especially in the government situation, you know, they not you know they might not do so well in the private sector. But where the process determines the outcome, they're great. And I should say, because like, I just am listening to myself, sounds like I'm being mean to nurses, you really got to feel for those medical staff. And there was a great article in the paper about 
hospice care nurses and really mm. touching stories. For the listeners that aren't aware, Marty and I both have pretty in-depth backgrounds within the health industry. So we won't go into details of what those are, but believe me, this is an area that we both know a lot about. And I think you're right, those nurses, those really incredible nurses, often will not stay in those. They'll either go into management, into the hospital system, or they'll pull out of that hospital system and go into a lot, go into uh, private um, hospital arrangements. They'll go into things like hospice, particularly ones that are a little bit more dynamic and think outside of the square and don't fall into that process-driven box. And don't l- like getting the hands dirty, get into cosmetic medicine. <laughs> uh, again, you said that, I did not. But they they move around and you find these uh, really a lot of these really amazing nurses, not necessarily in the public system. Also, a lot of those incredible critical thinking nurses are the ones that got mandated out. Yeah, I know a few of them, top-level ER nurses who are uh, cleaning houses still. Yeah. So when you have Aisha Viral saying that they're opening up clinical placements, so 130 this year, 700 next year, and these are the clinical placements that mid to senior nursing students go into to order to complete their training, it does beg the question, A, why they, those placements weren't available to begin with. And she said, and she said, on News Talk ZB yesterday morning that, oh, yes, I know that sounds crazy, but the only reason we now know that this was a problem is because we have to fight order and we had everything together. And it wasn't, it was because everything was too fractionated and the DHBs were fighting amongst themselves for those nursing placements. Mm. Really, Aisha? Really? Yeah. yeah. Just getting back to that war on management, though, you know, the other thing I'll say is just the disgraceful violence against paramedics and and nurses in uh, New Zealand's hospitals. And there was a just a piss-weak quote from a manager, Dr. Mike Shepard, interim lead at Te Toka Tumai, Auckland. I assume that's probably Middlemore or something like that. Said it worked closely with staff, WorkSafe and unions on the stop work notices and put measures in place. Shepard says hospitals can be stressful at times and Te Toka Tumai Auckland is sympathetic to patients and whanau who are coping with challenging illnesses. Now, you want people to be sympathetic, but when they're talking about the staff crazily overworked and stressed in those environments getting assaulted, you really want your manager to be saying, it's absolutely unacceptable. We're always going to call the police and take the strongest measures against anyone who ever assaults our staff. That is the nature of the beast. I mean, you just have to look at Hawara, where those gang members beat up someone in the McDonald's because they were wearing red. Almost all of them got sentencing discounts. What sort of message does that send? Oh, it sends that continued message that if you're in a gang, you can pretty much get away with almost anything. If you're a scumbag at the moment, you're getting away with pretty light sentences for extreme scumbaggery Mm. it's it's almost an incentive i was really intrigued by all of these numbers like particularly with beryl when she was announcing um the nursing numbers and she was talking about because of these placements right so 830 total 130 this year 700 next year that meant that we could get more locally trained nurses through the system but again as you said you've got you know nurses cleaning houses I know the last number I saw was something like seven or eight hundred that were had indicated 
that they were keen to go back to work. We know that there are hundreds and hundreds of nurses out there who are still not working because they've only been able to go back to work usually in private medical situations where they do not require a vaccine mandate because Tefatu order still does. Yeah. And a lot of clinics, GP practices still do. So this is the one thing they don't touch on that. They don't touch on the existing workforce that's still out there that still want to come back to work and they're not allowing them, number one, already trained, probably will just need to do a course to get the CME back up. That's a hell of a lot easier than trying to start and grow a whole new crop one don't you think and number two you've got these nurses who are out there who are just at their wits end and a lot of these and you've got to remember over a certain age a lot of these nurses are women have always largely been women Mm. so you fire them out there they're under stress a lot of them are working because they enjoy the work not because they need to work yeah and there's a lot of women around my age 50 something and they're thinking they're well, it's kind of collegial and exciting yeah. too, isn't it? You, yeah. you, 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 you're in a team, you're doing something noble, um, it's stressful, but you're getting the job done. Once you've seen the masks come off and the way you've been treated, it's tough to get that buzz out of that environment anymore. If this is from the, it's not a bug, it's a feature thing as well. Yeah, it would make sense for them to let those nurses back, but they're not. So you could say, oh, they're not because they're stupid, or you could say, well, they're not because the whole point of the reaction to the pandemic in many ways was a vaccine passport that the World Health Organization is talking about using the EU's terribly dystopian system worldwide for any travel. You know, they've got another thing planned where that's going to be ramped up again. So they don't want to get the dissenters back in the system because they're going to fire it up again. Exactly. And anyone coming into the system, so any new nursing student, any one of these 830 that Asia reckons is going to be there, they are now still covered by all these mandates. So if you've got a young person that wants to enter nursing and they chose not to get vaccinated and they're now of an age that they can go into this training, they need to be completely up to date with their vaccinations for COVID. And these are young people, and we know, it's pointless, but no, you have to comply. Now, up until that point, I think there was only one vaccination that was mandatory to go into nursing. And I've had nurses saying, oh, no, you always have to have, 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 to have all your jabs to go into nursing. You always, no, you don't. No, mm. you don't. There was one, and I can't remember which. I think it may have been hepatitis. I'm not 100% certain. There was one that you had to have. I wonder how they square that when they're teaching them about bodily autonomy and informed consent. Well, do they teach them about bodily autonomy? Maybe it's, I mean, it, maybe it just quietly disappeared uh, as the foundation of m- medical ethics. By doing that, it means that you're ensuring that those coming into the system are going to be the little automatons in the process, so they're not going to question the process anymore. It is yeah. really sad. So then another figure, I'm going to dive into this and then I'm going to jump into some of your stuff. Sorry, I'm getting a bit ranty people today. That's right. Uh, Another figure that I heard last week uh, on Friday, just before I went to Wellington, was 42% of doctors were leaving medicine before they got to sort of senior training, but there was no reference to where that came from. Mm. I thought, that's a big number. My nose started twitching. My nose did start twitching. Now, I know a lot of doctors. 
I know a lot of doctors who have left medicine. They've either retired early or they've downgraded the amount of hours of work significantly. They've taken sabbaticals. They've they've pulled themselves outside of the system. None of these have been captured in numbers within Mm. the system. None of them. When you hear of these shortages, and these ones are New Zealand trained doctors, so they're homegrown. Then you had the COVID response and a lot of doctors, particularly the ones that came from international locations, they fled. The minute that they saw that those borders were getting clamped down and locked down tight, they up sticks and took off. Yeah. And a lot haven't come back. So I, again, did my little spidey sense this morning and I discovered where that number came from. And it came from a report from ASMS, which is the Association of Salaried Medical Specialists. This is an ASMS submission to Te Kaumehana Whaihua, or Aotearoa, which I have no idea what that is, none whatsoever, but it says Productivity Commission, so I'm assuming it's that's got to do with productivity. Oh, oh, and it's and it's on um, improving economic resilience, and they released this in April. Mm. It was very quiet, obviously. Yeah, it was the very PR, quiet, wasn't it? Yeah, the PR department didn't pick this one up. Uh, so they talked about a number of things, and I'm just going to pull out a few numbers. They talk about the pipeline, and that's what Aisha Viral is doing with her nursing thing, is the pipeline, right, to get more people into the pipeline. She's talking about that with nursing, and there are nursing shortages, but there are also shortages in places like anaesthetic technicians. We have a problem with that because there is Mm. no pipeline for anaesthetic techs in this country because we don't train them here. Uh, At best, they get trained in Australia. Most of the ones that we have in this country that I've ever come across have all been English. We get them out from across there. So the pipeline in this country has been flawed. They did a comparison between the OECD and the New Zealand average, and we fall. uh, We were relatively, in 1990, we we were relatively close. We were running at about 8.5% per 100,000 population of graduates, and it was just under, uh, it was about 9.5. We're about a percent out from the OECD average, so a little bit under, not too bad. Fast forward to 2020, we are now, we have grown to just over 10 graduates per 100,000, the OECD average is closer to, it's about 13.5. So that gap is... 13.5? 13.5. More doctors are being trained and more people are saying, we need more doctors, we need more They're being trained. Yeah. Well, we've got a shortage of kids coming out of the union-mandated education system of functionally literate and numerate. And that's, uh, you can often sheet your uh, all your issues in health back to that failure. So this is a summary for that graph. There are losses along the pipeline between graduation and vocational registration. The data is patchy in itself an issue. Getting good data is hard. But from our analysis, assuming the approximate eight-year period from graduation to vocational registration, there was a 16% loss between 2006 and 2014. This grew to a 41% loss between the graduate numbers of 2014 and 2020. 22. Wow. 41% loss. Now, they cite possible explanations, workforce losses. I think that's the euphemism for mandates. Yeah. Some doctors are working as GPs and chose not to be vocationally registered, or that means go on to specialist training. 
I think Brian Betty would potentially disagree with that because he's always banging on about how there is not enough GPs. Many junior doctors are just simply not entering specialist training. The latest data we've seen from 2017, where there were over 200 training positions um, unfulfilled, that's 11% of the total FTEs. We've now sought data, updated data from Tefata Order, but they say they don't hold it. We've not seen an explanation at why this is happening. So there are training places available but these junior doctors are not taking it up in order to mm. do it. I've spoken to people who, again, in senior medical who are consultants, they've, they've come out the sausage factory at the other end. They're telling me something quite different. They're telling me that uh, it has become so onious to get these trainees through. They're either A, don't cut the mustard, B, don't want to do the work, or C, they just take one look at it and go, it's not worth them. Yeah, well, I mean, you, we're getting to that uh, point of the, the glorious socialist revolution where we pretend to pay them, they pretend to work. You know, there's something really ethereal about morale, isn't there? And you need morale to work in a team and all of that management just cuts into the trust society, just the government overreach and the the authoritarian way of dealing with people just cuts out that joyful initiative that people have and there's so much productivity in that i'll do one little bit of stuff and then i'm going to get done get off my ranty pants and you're right and morale new zealand has always then attracted a lot of doctors from overseas because yeah. it was perceived as great lifestyle beautiful country better uh living standards than wherever it is that they came from most of them came were british trained how many people out there have got a South African doctor? ASMs did dive into this as well. New Zealand graduates and new entries with vocational registration, hospital and primary care specialists. To attempt to fill the medical workforce gaps, Aotearoa in New Zealand has the second highest proportion of international medical graduates. Wow. Second only to Israel, including... In our existing workforce, currently working in New Zealand, 45.5% of all medical workforce in this country are from overseas. So mm. nearly half. That's something that means that things can change real fast, and, and it seems like they are. Yep. Of course, what's happened now, and this is where COVID does lay this, is that when COVID happened, which, as you said, things happen fast and you have this massive event, all of a sudden things become completely different. So there is now a lot of competition for these international medical graduates. We've got really poor retention of them now here in this country. The UK, which was one of our biggest taps for this, that spigot has now been turned off. In the UK, as of June 2020, there were 8,278 NHS consultancy vacancies and underestimate the national shortage. Now, I also know of Kiwi consultants who have left this country and have gone to work in the NHS because they can do so without drumroll, please. You know, they can maintain bodily autonomy in the NHS. We do not no. allow that here. So a lot of these international medical graduates come over on a locum basis. So they they do a working holiday, they they come and do they fill short-term contracts, they do all those sorts of things. Now, those for starters are very, very expensive. You're paying over and above standard odds for those doctors because mm. of the short-term nature. And the hope is, is that they come here, they work in the environment here, they love it, they choose to stay. That's generally what happens. Yep. When, and I don't know whether you've experienced this, but you go into um, a new place. That's how I got married. Yeah. 
exactly. You go to a new place and you meet, um, you know, the other consultants would sort of come round and make you feel welcome because they really want you to stay. As a survey of those international medical graduates, an average of just 62% of those graduates are still working in New Zealand a year later. Mm. Look, I could go on and on and on. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that I give this report to our team at Inbox at RealityCheck.radio. So if you're somebody who is in the medical field that you are interested in this report and you want to have a look at it, you can email Liz and she will get that across to you. But there's a whole bunch more in there. I tell you what, my blood pressure is up and I needed to, but it just shows you that these issues are there. And this is a union highlighting this, a union. Yeah, did you read the um, nothing to see? The here. Amanda Ro- Dr. Amanda Rosenberg, the big feature in New Zealand Herald. You didn't get the New Zealand Herald, did you? No, because I was I was in the in the land of the Welly. The Herald yeah. was not really welcome down there. It's just the hospital management. She's an A and E nurse. She's worked in Baltimore, right? One of the highest. Very tough. Yeah, real tough city. Um, used to be great, but Democrats. She's really concerned about the safety. Uh, and, and again, you've just got so much gaslighting from management. You know, staff warn the stress becomes a vicious cycle. Burnout leads to more staff calling in sick, which leads to heavier workloads, which leads to people leaving, which leads to bigger deficits. So you can see how that, if you look at it as a graph, we're probably, you know, starting to get to the steep bit. But then the management come in with the gaslight. At a national level, the experts who monitor the effectiveness of our health service say they're not yet seeing clear evidence that the staffing crisis and access barriers have led to more bad outcomes for patients than would normally occur in hospitals. Everything's fine. Well, and actually, and according to ASMs, that data isn't there. So they're blowing yeah. smoke up everybody's asses. It's amazing how often that the data isn't there. I was listening to a really interesting program about vaccinations and how there's that link between vaccinations and autism that apparently just isn't there. And uh, this lady was questioned under oath. She's a safety monitor at at the uh, FDA or or something. Maybe it was the CDC. She basically said, yeah, well, the work's just not there. We've got nothing to prove that there is a link. Not the same as proving satisfactorily there's not a link. Mm. And if you look at Amish communities, they have virtually no autism. They've got very little allergy. We're constantly adjusting the way we manage our resources and investigating and implementing improvements, and we are making good progress, Shepard Interim Lead for Te Toka Tumai Auckland says in response. There's a big industry in the rolling turds and glitter cope-up. No, you highlighted another piece, which we did both pull out, which was an opinion piece by Kushla Smythe. She's the CEO of the Medical Technology Association. And and they've put this in the main paper. This is one of the first times I've seen in the main paper somebody pushing back against the Therapeutic um, Goods Act. Now, on this station, we have been all over that big time if you want to see some replays on that um go check paul brennan i know paul is all over this for april 26 we, he talked to patty fahey 8th may gary moller um i know he's talked to guy hatchard and i think guy she may have mentioned this as well in his interview all of those are available at replays at realitycheck.radio so do go and have a look at them now this is somebody who is involved in the technology and medical device sector so they've gone through that legislation and actually have seen the effects that 
it will have for them. Their concerns were the bill as it currently stands throws out years of progress and collaboration across comparable countries and that has meant New Zealanders have timely access to medical devices. And I'm picking that a lot of them, like I know in um, diabetes, there's been a huge with those and uh, monitors and yeah. things like that. It's a massive progress. What's more, the government has shown a willingness to make changes to the bill to address Ronga Māori and natural health products, and they should be extended to medical devices. Now, that's really interesting. So it's all right. They've gone and made, obviously, tweaks for, for Māori natural health. Hello, what about the rest of natural health and medical mm. devices? Her concern is, is that despite the facts that they have tried to present for the comparisons and the issues, the Therapeutics Products Bill in its current form will require a new regulator. There we go. Another, you know, they love them, those regulators. Yeah, that's what the health system needs. Another regulator. More regulation. And it's like you never see, see any stories about what this is the answer to. So what's the problem? You can look at opportunity cost. How many hip replacements is this? Well, there's nothing here about outcomes. I've not once seen with that Therapeutic Goods Act, what is the outcome? What is yeah. the entire purpose? How involved is the, the pharmaceutical industry in pushing this? I don't know. I don't know. I've got my Grumpium on today. I've overdosed on Grumpium. That's what a weekend <laughs> in Wellington will do to you. Yeah, I mean, it was a, just a weird, discombobulated kind of news cycle this week. And I mean, there's so much in the news that, because I've been interested in productivity, because I'd like to see a bit more talk about real issues. And, and these guys are releasing um, a report this week. So I'll wade through that. But you just read the word salad that this guy writes. It's just so uninspiring. And it's uh, that high fiber thing again talking about oh the new stuff on on local government um so where's that from? We both recognize the strength of communities to respond to systemic chain challenges for themselves with the right support from central and local government again the recommendations we have made in our respective reports can be considered mutually reinforcing so i mean the fact that it's finally they're talking about the ability of people to do things for themselves when it should be primary if you're looking for themes that's a theme for me always. It's like, well, okay, we've got this giant neo-feudalist kind of body that's never talked about in the media for some reason. It's wanting to centralise, centralise, centralise power. Where's the corresponding effort to sheet responsibility and power back to the individual? I guess that's up to us. Mm. There's so many examples of you know, that centralisation and how it's... I mean, you know from history, it doesn't it doesn't lead anywhere good. But yeah, speaking of the WEF, old uh, Fran O'Sullivan got on uh, one of the two seven five sevens and shot over to China. Yeah, mentioned Summer Davos in the context of Premier Li's address to the Summer Davos, a World Economic Forum meeting in Tianjin where he talked up the Chinese economy and criticised the West for calls on de-risking, but noted that China's economic rebound has been in an apparent positive direction since the beginning of this year. Well, I guess they did well out of COVID. But that was it. There was no mention that Christopher Hipkins is a WEF young global leader. No allusion to Jacinda Ardern's status as a young global leader. 
And then across the page, you've got Simon Power talking about TV. No mention of his being a WEF young global leader. And I don't, the, the head trade negotiator, whose name escapes me uh, on this trip, WEF, whether he's a young global leader or involved with it, but he's got involvement with it. But the fact that it's never mentioned really gives me the creeps. And if it is, it's to sort of elbow aside as kind of a conspiracy theory, as Grant Robertson did. Oh, this was back in, oh, it was a couple of years ago when... Yeah, with Peter Williams. Yeah. You know, asked him a question about it and he said, oh, Peter, I think it's actually reasonably absurd that you raised that on the program today. My understanding, which I've only recently read about this, is this is a giant conspiracy theory. It's a giant conspiracy theory. He said, well, I can't appear on your show if you're going to talk about this. Now, do you think that influenced other journalists to um, not talk about this? Is that why, we, we, you know, there's no mention of it anywhere? Because, you know, for a lot of people, that works. But for someone like me and someone like you, it really doesn't work. It does the opposite of working. It just makes me think, my gosh, what's going on with this? You know, there's, and so you look it up, the board members are just all of these globalists, Al Gore, Christine Lagarde, Lawrence Fink, chairman of BlackRock. You know, this is guys introducing all of this environmental e social e governance. Scores. Yeah, the yeah. ESG scores. David M. Rubenstein, founder of the mm. Carpal Group, who profited so handsomely for all, from all of America's uh, um, dropping peace one bomb at a time missions to destroy cities. I um, When I drove back from Wellington yesterday, I had saved up my Leighton Smith podcasts and he interviewed Ramesh Thakur. Yeah, I listened to that. Great. Gosh, Leighton Smith, you're a national treasure. Oh, heck, that man is never allowed to retire. Leighton asked him around the WEF and the fact that there is this link as you've just outlined amongst all of these people and the amount of influence peddling there. And actually, Thakur had a really interesting, he he didn't see it quite as that direct link, but what he did see it is a phenomenon of all of these people that come together and suffer from groupthink because yeah. they're all within that bubble together and they take that group think away and they're all and it's essentially a a little global club and they want to look good with their mates and when they move out into their respective governance whilst they're not enacting policy directly written down from the WEF there is a certain level of expectation amongst their peers so you have this group think amongst this group of yeah, people and I, when you I, actually this is I think that's probably an element you can imagine someone who's narcissistic like a Trudeau, like an Ardern, you know, I mean, as I've said before, I always have these horrible unbidden imaginings about what the phone calls from Klaus Schwab to her would have been like, oh, you know, Jacinda, all visionary leaders, you know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> no, yes, I am a visionary leader. <laughs> and yeah, so you could flatter someone like that into destroying their country if you just kept patting them. But I don't buy that these people just accidentally act like they want to rule the world. There's a really strong contempt for ordinary people going well, through the whole thing. I think that they that's the thing. They live in this this bubble. And having spent a weekend in Wellington, and I haven't been to Wellington for a wee while, you live in this bubble. And, and I, you know what I think it is? Particularly if we look at it from a New Zealand perspective, 
A lot more people, particularly in the bubbles of Wellington, live in Aotearoa, whereas the rest of us that live in New Zealand see a completely different picture. And when it comes to the election in, what, 13, 12, 13 weeks' time, it will be essentially, I believe, a vote. You're either voting for Aotearoa or you're voting for New Zealand. You've got to pick one because that's Mm. where we're at. I'm still totally undecided. I didn't get back uh, to Napier in time to hear uh, Winston's roadshow because he's, I mean, I'm trying to, talk to everybody and and it is really getting to that point that I know that I'm going to have to vote with my head not my heart and that upsets me because you know you want to feel really good about what you're doing but the reality of it is is in order to have any skin in the game you're going to have to take a bit of pill and yeah. lots of grumpy him over that but anyway continue on well, I don't agree you know, I mean like there's a guy uh, Yuval Noah Harari <laughs> and, you know <laughs> The Brains Trust of the WEF is a WEF advisor, has said we just don't need the vast majority of the population. He's the useless eaters guy, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, but, (sighs) like, if you're familiar with with all the stuff, right back to the Club of Rome days, the useless eaters thing is a pretty familiar trope with these guys. And and, um, it's two classes of people. Yep, 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 that's what it is. Yeah, he said, fast forward to the early 21st century when we just don't need the vast majority of the population because the future is about developing more and more and more sophisticated technology like artificial intelligence and bioengineering. Most people don't contribute anything to that except perhaps for their data and whatever people are still doing, which is useful. These technologies increasingly will make redundant and will make it possible to replace people. If you sort of boil down what they want, and I talked about this yesterday, you know, it's no sovereignty, uh, sorry, last week, a global currency, central banks doing that right now, global governance, ESG scores and all that stuff, dictatorship by corporate cartels. So, you know, this is where the the stuff for the Therapeutic Goods Act is coming in. Who, who wants it? Well, some of these global cartels want it because it helps eliminate their competition. The dictatorship backed by global NATO. So that's the Radio New Zealand guy getting jumped on when he went against the uh, policy. Luxon gushing over the dwarf in the T-shirt. Total censorship directed by media and social media cartels. And that's where Dear Leader's gone now. She's just driving that same agenda. And go back to her speaking to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You know, we're the first country in the world to run and make sure all of our legislation is compatible with UN Agenda 2030. Who knows what the Agenda 2030 is? Mm. Who voted for that? Mm. Who even remembers her talking about it or any media mentioning that that's the railway track we're on? Well, you know, the COVID era was the era of the expert I think the post-COVID era is going to be the era of the regulator. I think it might be the era of the small village. (laughs) There are certainly a lot of themes and we've covered off. Have you got anything else on your little list? Well, you know, I've got one thing. You know how you do a good news? Oh, yeah, I'm glad you found good news because I didn't find any. Well, it was a bit dark this week. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. Usually I'm the optimistic one, but not this week. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I probably, yeah, probably am considerably more um, cheery, aren't I? Oh, we didn't even talk about Kitty Allen. No. I'll read you one quote about that, which is Matthew Hooten in the New Zealand Herald on Friday. Uh, he's talking about how well Chris Hipkins was doing overseas. So Hipkins has made some progress. 
What a shame then that another of his arrogant, incompetent, and in this case, exceptionally overrated subordinates, Justice Minister Kitty Allen, overshadowed him. Man, she's annoyed him at some point. <laughs> but there was a, an article that featured both in the uh, Sunday Star Times. Uh, Graham Tuckett did an article on why Cliff Curtis should have won an Oscar for The Dark Horse. Yes, I saw that. Genesis Portini, who that's about, was a great friend of mine. And there's a scene in that movie that's based on a fight he and I had with the Black Power, where he sets up the uh, the game of chess on, on the bonnet of the car and then gets punched out. It was actually a lot heavier <laughs> in real life than it was in the movie. There was about 15 patched gang members, a lot of them carrying baseball bats and stuff. I had to chuck him in the passenger seat of his car and uh, drive out of there. It was one of those hilarious things that uh, you get with life in Gisborne and the sort of mixture of friends you make. And while all this was going on, there was at one point he asked to borrow some money off me. He always, you know, borrowed bits of money off me because if he didn't borrow it off me, he'd borrow it off the mongrel mob who would charge him 100% interest to buy a box of piss. Asked if he could borrow a bit more. He said, oh, ah, uh, oh, hey, uh, how are you for money at the moment? I said, oh, actually, I'm not too bad. He said, oh, could I borrow a bit more than than, than uh, usual draft? Ah, uh, yeah, uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting, uh, uh, they're going to pay me uh, uh, $10,000 in a few weeks for um, for my life story. So, uh and I said, well, how much do you need? And he said, oh, you know, 300 bucks, would that be too much? And, you know, I, I think I've even loaned him a bit more. He always paid me back. And, yeah, he paid me back. And I just thought, man, that seems unlikely. But whatever, you know. Mm. Yeah, and he's, he's taken, a, taken too young, Genesis. I get a thrill every time I see uh, that come up in the paper again. And I, I when, we, when the film was on, I was sitting behind uh, – Another great mate of mine, Noble Keelan, who's a character in the film, when Genesis comes around and he's standing outside his house and it's like, oh, you know, telling him off. And Genesis walks away into the night and I was sitting in the movie theatre poking Noble in the back going, <laughs> what a stink fella, man. Won't even <laughs> let your mate into the house. And going, oh, I know, because he would have always let him in. Yeah. But uh, I got a kick out of that. Very good. Well, we're going to have to wrap this up. As always, Continent. don't disappear because White Word of the Week is still coming. It's going to be an absolute cracker this week. You're not, in fact, it's two words. You're not going to miss that. Thank you very much, Marty. You and I will see each other again. In fact, in person, we're we'll going to do. Yeah, we're going to do Media Matters in person. I am going to be in the Florida of um, the North in Papamoa. So New we're going Zealand, to Florida, do, the Papalopolis. The Papalopolis. So that's going to be loads of fun. I can't wait to do that. And also you'll catch Marty on the political panel on a Friday morning with Paul, Olivia and Cam. And I'm also scorching off a few columns uh, these days as well. So they'll be popping up soon. So keep an eye out for those. Yeah, we're really, really pumping out the content and we're really enjoying that. So don't disappear. You're with Reality Check Radio. It's been Marty and Marie with Media Matters, more to come, including Right Word of the Week. Have a great week. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah.